welcome to the Innovating Purpose podcast, where I'm striving to live intentionally and seeking clarity for new and young readers. Good morning, church, and welcome to Palm Sunday. We're so glad that you're here with us. I wanted to start today with a word of prayer. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we come before you with a great appreciation for your love and care in our life. We thank you that you listen and you hear all of our requests. Help us to draw close to you, Lord, because you are worthy of our trust. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be with us right here in this moment. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being with us every step of the way. We love you so much, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. This week, we are going to go on an adventure. We're going to read through quite a few passages and be immersing ourselves into the story of Palm Sunday. But before we get there, for the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about true love. What is true love? Can this possibly be expressed by God? And even more so, I've been thinking about what is real love? What does that look like and how is it expressed? Well, I thought a bit about a few illustrations, and the one that really stuck with me was from my childhood. As a child, I used to imagine myself as the hero in the sport that I was playing. I can't tell you how many times I would grab my bat and my ball, and I'd walk out, and we lived out in the country, and I'd walk out into the yard, and I'd be saying to myself, the count is full. It's the bottom of the ninth. And I'd be throwing the ball up and then I'd swing. And if I hit it and it went over the fence, the crowd, which was me, would go crazy. And everyone would be just jumping and, and going just ecstatic for this celebration. But also there was those moments when I would throw the ball up and I would nick it. Foul ball, foul ball. The count is still full. And the next time I'd swing and miss it and I'd say, oh, it didn't count. You know how that goes. But then as a child, I began to play basketball. And this is actually the basketball I got my senior year of high school with all the team's signatures on it. It sits in my office, and it's a good, sweet reminder of those days. But I can't tell you how many times I'd dribble around, and I'd be back. we had a, a really big barn with a, a hoop inside, so really cool. And I'd be in there dribbling around, and it'd always be three, two, 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 one, and I'd pull up and I would shoot. And if it went in, the crowd would go nuts. And if I missed, there was obviously a foul and we'd reset the clock to three seconds and we'd do it again. I would do this for hours. My, my thought in this was I was trying to be the hero. I was trying to be the one that the crowd would go crazy for. I really had this desire to be the one that everyone loved and appreciated, to be the victor, to be the hero of the story. 
I remember even dreaming about that I was a scientist and that I was solving cancer and I was creating some formula that was going to do something amazing technologically and be able to cure these problems in the world. I remember I used to dream when I was a child in my grade school class that a bad guy had come into the school and I was the one who was going to tackle him and wrestle away the weapon and save the day and then I would get the princess and I would leave with my victory. There was so much about this that I wanted to be the hero. Maybe you can see yourself in some of these stories and remember that childish imagination. And some of that we lose. We do forget how beautiful that is. Well, I want us to redefine today heroics. Now, when, I, when people would have told me about Jesus, I went to church almost every Sunday growing up, and I still go to church almost every Sunday, um, you would not have heard me talking about Jesus with that same excitement. I didn't imagine him as the hero of the story. I didn't picture him as the one who saved the day. Really, his, his life just seemed not realistic. The adventures, I, I couldn't quite comprehend what they really would have looked like because it wasn't in a movie and it didn't have the soundtrack of music behind it. I couldn't grasp that this Jesus was real, nor could I imagine that his life was real, that his death was real, that his resurrection was real, or that his life had any relevance or importance to me. But little did I know that true life, real life, is found only in knowing this Jesus that I didn't know yet. I didn't understand the price that he had paid for me. I didn't understand how beautifully simple the gospel good news message was. You know, and now as in my adult years, there are times when I try to explain Christianity and I explain it too simplistically. And then there's those other times when I overcomplicate what should be so simple. Sometimes I, I talk about Jesus and I act like you know him, and maybe you do, maybe you don't. But I assume these things about him. But for the next two weeks, I want us to, to grasp why Jesus was so important and why understanding this God that we proclaim to worship, as we just did in these songs with Maury, why understanding him is so important. And I want you to hear, too, in the midst of this, why Jesus became my hero. Way greater than any uh, movie star or a sup superior athlete that won the World Series or won the Super Bowl or won the finals. He was greater than anything this world had to offer. I started to understand I could never be the Savior. I could never heal all the diseases. I could never fix all of the problems that exist in this world. I would never be able to earn enough accolades or awards so that the world would see me as something more than a human. Only one, only an eternal, all-powerful being could do this. And this is where I land with Jesus. He is that all-powerful, all-knowing everywhere at all times, God, that I began to grow in relationship with and understand in a new and a fresh way. 
and he is present at all times. And perhaps you're, you're new to this story of Jesus. And when, as we read these stories, we start to see that Jesus did things with intentionality. Everything that he did was with a purpose, especially in the last few years. Certainly, we would be led to assume, but also I would agree with the fact that he had intentionality and purpose in his first 30 years of his life. But those last few years, he was extremely pointed and it was recorded well. So that's what we have to work with. What we're going to talk about for the next two weeks are the series of events that took place from the time of his arrival into Jerusalem, the final time as he rode in, all the way up to his crucifixion today. And then next week, we're going to be discussing the beauty of the resurrection. Now, to be a disciple and to see what they saw and to hear what they heard would have been so powerful. If I was one of the disciples to see his miracles and to see the different ways that Jesus did things, I would have been overly impressed and couldn't have imagined that Jesus was some soon going to be leaving them. But he was. Do we understand this? Do we, we imagine that he was trying to warn them that he would soon be walking away? He would soon be dying. He would soon be rising from the dead. Did they really get it? And it's pretty clear they didn't. They couldn't see. They couldn't understand. And Jesus' main purpose was to bring the kingdom of God and put it in our hands so that we could see, we could feel, we could touch Jesus Christ, who was the Savior of the world. We could know him, and the kingdom of God could be brought to the earth. As Matthew 6.10 says, may your kingdom come soon. We see this. We start to understand that the kingdom that he was bringing was not one of good works and miracles. Certainly he was about those things, but that wasn't his main purpose. That wasn't his main objective. He was bringing in a righteous kingdom, a glorified kingdom, so that goodness could be done on earth. He was performing the greatest act of humankind had ever seen because he was in effect canceling the debt that we owed through sin. He was willing to do this as our creator. He was willing to step in to creation. So how can this prepare us for Easter? And how can you prepare your heart? How is this preparing us for the kingdom of God? Well, true love, eternal love, comes through justification. Justification is a big word, which basically means being made right with God. And this could all be accomplished through a perfect sacrifice. This is why Jesus came. So if you'll turn with me, we're going to move pretty fast. And you might have to keep flipping through the pages, but we're going to stay in Matthew. So I hope that you can follow along with us as we move through. I want to enter into the story in Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. And I'm not going to read these verses. I just want to summarize so many of the things that are said here. But Jesus tells the disciples as he pulls them aside privately that he is going to be betrayed by the leading priests and the teachers of religious law, that he would be sentenced to die. He even warns them that he will be mocked. He will be flogged with the whip and he will be crucified. 
but on the third day he will be raised. Pay attention to this. This is prior to Palm Sunday. They've heard how he would soon be killed. Now, they didn't get a a weak warning. They didn't get told that in a week, on Friday, at this point, this and this and this will happen. There wasn't a time frame mapped up, but they were warned. Can you imagine hearing that from Jesus? You've seen him perform miracle after miracle that were just overwhelming. Things that humans couldn't do. Healing the sick, healing the lame, healing the blind. Doing things that just didn't make sense because they don't make sense. They're beyond the scope of what a human can do. So this Jesus was somebody different. And he's privately warning him, warning the disciples of his betrayal that will come soon. That one of them will betray him. That he will be killed. He will be falsely accused. But have hope. The resurrection is coming. Let's keep moving because now we're going to move into Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday happens in in Matthew chapter 21, verses 7 through 11. This is a fascinating story, and certainly each one of these could be analyzed and reflected on, and you could see the entirety. But I wanted us to see bigger picture today, so that's why I chose so many. Jesus is riding in on a colt, on a donkey, one that has never been ridden before. And as he rides into town, the town is in an uproar, in a good way. They are celebrating this king-like person who is riding into town, and he is the one that's the miracle worker. He's the one that some have said, he's a prophet. Maybe he's a priest. Maybe he's John the Baptist reincarnated. Maybe he's Elijah. Who is this man? But they begin to worship him. They take off their coats. They throw their coats on the road. They grab branches off of trees and they're cutting them and they're waving them and they're throwing them on the road to ceremoniously welcome him into the village and into the the town. As they shout, praise God for the son of David. Blessing on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. This is one of the few times that Jesus is publicly praised and honored, and he accepts it. We don't know what his posture was. We don't know if he smiled or if he waved or if he accepted it, and, but he did ride in, and they all worshiped him, and you see no rebuttal. We even see that the rocks would have cried out if the people wouldn't have. Jesus is welcomed as a king. This is a grand formal entrance into Jerusalem. Yet, the fanfare quickly is forgotten. These people who thought, maybe he's the king of kings, maybe he's the new king, maybe he's in the lineage of David, how quickly they forget. It's not but just a few days later that we see that perhaps even these same people that are in that crowd cry out in a different tone, in an angry tone, with accusations in their fingers, crucify him. We want Barabbas. Let's move into Matthew 24, verses 9 through 14. And I want to read this one to you. It says, Then you will be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You will be hated all over the world because you are my followers. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere, 
and the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world, so that all the nations will hear it, and then the end will come. This is a hard one to process, because Jesus is saying this before, his, before he is killed on the cross, and right after he has ridden into town ceremoniously. What is he doing here? He's warning them. This is what we, you and I, and people that follow Jesus Christ, have coming for us. It doesn't sound like a very optimistic future, does it? But it reminds us that the future will not be easy. People will be claiming to know the truth, but won't really know the truth. Can we relate to this? People who say, listen to me, I've got a microphone and I know all truth. I'm someone worth listening to. Really? Are you really worth listening to? We hear and we see in these verses that people find ways to commit old sins. These sins are not new. There's nothing new under the sun. We've heard that in Old Testament times. People are always being more creative with old sins and finding ways to please themselves. Yet I love the end of this little passage here, verse 14, when we start to see and recognize that eventually the whole world will hear this message about Christ. How refreshing that must have been to the disciples Everyone will hear this someday. So it's not in vain that they would be laboring. It's not in vain that they would be persecuted. People would be hearing about Christ and the word would spread to the entire world. That's a worthy cause because everyone will know, everyone will hear. Matthew 24, verses 45 through 50 go on to say, And this one's a little bit tricky as well, but it's also good to recognize, and I think you can place yourself into this passage. A faithful, sensible servant is one to whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. If the master returns and finds that the servant has done a good job, there will be a reward. I tell you the truth, the master will put that servant in charge of all he owns. But what if the servant is evil and thinks, my master won't be back for a while. And he begins beating the other servants, partying and getting drunk. The master will return unannounced and unexpected. And he will cut the servant to pieces and and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why did I choose this? I want us to see this clearly, that Jesus left us with the assigned duties the labor and the work that you are a part of, the things that you are doing, if you're doing them for the glory of God and you're doing them with a good heart and you're doing them with excitement and joy, the King of kings and Lord of lords is pleased with you for serving so well in the place that you were called to serve. But if you think to yourself, he won't be back, he doesn't listen, he won't notice, those are the people that God is done with. He doesn't want these people because they are not worthy servants. They are unwilling to live their lives as though Jesus will come back. So do we hear this, church? What has your master God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, left you in charge of? Have you been faithful with your time and energy? 
They, do you think moments like today and yesterday came by happenstance or that they are opportunities for you to grow? Will you grow today or will you waste the precious time that is given you? When I'm sitting around and I think I've earned this, I get to put my feet up. I can be lazy for this moment. There's nothing wrong with that small moment there. But if a majority of your days are looking for ways to better please yourself, to better put your feet up, and to better relax and not do anything of significance and purpose, I would ask, what is the purpose of your life? Do you have a higher calling? Do you believe that you are worthy to be used? Matthew 26, verses 6 through 16 is a beautiful passage, and it takes us into the next part of the story. This is a part of the story that we sometimes jump past. But there's a woman that walks into the room with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume, and she pours it over the head of Jesus. First of all, immerse yourself into that room. If you've ever... um, I'm going to pick on junior high boys for a little bit. If you've ever been around a junior high boy and they're going out in public and they want to be around some pretty girls, the typical response of a junior high boy is just spray cologne and axe spray all over them. I can't tell you how many times I've walked by one of them and I just go, you're trying too hard and I can't breathe. And it is this Whoa. So if you immerse yourself into this room, this isn't just a small little jar, an alabaster jar full of perfume. This is a dumping of perfume. That little axe spray mist is, which is too much. This is a whole jar. This would have been, and it was actually defined as a whole year's supply. It would have taken a whole year's salary to pour this much So that room, can you imagine being one of the disciples? That smell would have been overwhelming. It's no wonder that they respond with, what a waste. We see this right in verse 8. What a waste. We could have bought all of this other stuff. And Jesus accepts this beautiful gift, and he doesn't criticize the woman I don't even know if the woman understand what she was doing. She knew that she wanted to honor him, but he takes this and he says, she is preparing me for my burial. Whoa. Do we comprehend the significance of this moment now? Jesus has been prepared for his burial. So now the disciples had to be thinking to themselves, well, if he's being prepared for burial... How many more days will he be with us? What's going on? It's a warning. It's a shock. It's a a moment of what is happening here. We begin to see from Jesus, and he reminds us pointedly that he served a higher purpose, and it was not about actions. He was leading up to his death, and his death wouldn't be the end, but he was pointing us towards that was his purpose. That was the reason he came to be here with us. This is a warning, but it's a sharp one. Matthew 26, verses 36 through 44. We have to enter into a different mode now. This is Thursday evening. Some call it Monday, Thursday. 
And in this scene, Jesus goes away to pray with the disciples. I don't know how many times in the last few sermons I've talked about Jesus going away to pray, but it was a rhythm and a pattern of Jesus that I hope you will um, take me up on, that it is a worthwhile rhythm to put into your day. But Jesus goes away to pray. And I don't know if it was a normal thing that he would go and pray at, in the late, late evening to his Father in heaven. I would have to assume he did do this before. But at the same time, we don't have a lot of record of him praying with the disciples like this. But as he's praying in the garden, he slips off by himself, but he tells them, pray with me. If you've ever been asked to pray at midnight or one o'clock or two o'clock in the morning, if you're anything like me, which is very human and normal, you can kind of drift off, and sometimes I'll even, you know, in the midst of a snore, like, wake up, amen, right? <laughs> it's this thought of, it's hard to pray when you're tired, and if you're physically exhausted, spiritually exhausted, emotionally exhausted, it's an entirely different version of tired. Jesus had the foresight. He knew what he was about to experience. He knew the crucifixion was coming soon, yet he chose to stay up and pray. He knew that he was preparing the disciples for this moment, yet they couldn't have comprehended, nor did they comprehend, because he wakes them up, and he says in verse 41, "'Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation.'" For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. That's a great, it's not an excuse, but it is a great reminder for me. I want my spirit to be willing, and I have to remind my, my body, stay awake, please keep praying. And these are those moments when I look back and I say, I want to be found as faithful when Jesus comes back. But he comes back a third time after these prayers and he's woken them and said, stay up with me, wake up, please be praying. And he keeps begging his father because he knows what he's about to endure. And Jesus, with his foresight, he also knew something else that I've been processing this week. He knew that this was going to be the first time that he wouldn't be able to interact with his father. He knew his father was going to turn his back on him because he knew what the cross would bring. It would mean the sin of the entire world would, from future and past and present tense would all be put on his shoulders and that God could not look upon sin. So he is communing with his father. He's not begging for it to be taken away so much as he's saying, I want your will to be done. What a prayer. And he's praying it for us. Can you imagine being a disciple and your memory goes back to that night after all this had concluded when Jesus had asked them to pray, did they think to themselves, I wish we would have prayed with him. I wish I wouldn't have fallen asleep. I wish that I, I wish. And I cut him off because this is a moment where they recognized more sincerely that Jesus was different. He was God in the flesh. And he was preparing them for the ultimate sacrifice that he was about to to partake and do for them. We see the final moments now. And I'm not going to get into all the trials and the mockery that takes place. Uh, you can certainly read these stories. You can see it depicted in the Gospels. It's in each one. But I ask this question, how is this real love, what Jesus went through, how is this real love put on display? Because it is Jesus' sacrificial love with a purpose 
the higher purpose of loving you and I, giving us an avenue back to a relationship with God that could not have been brought on from just a human's death on the cross. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. His purpose was to remain perfect. He did miraculous things, but those were insignificant. His ultimate purpose was to pay the price for us. And he was ready to fulfill his purpose. He was ready to fulfill the sacrificial system that could no longer please the Lord. He was putting an end to their old ways. And he was becoming the holy, perfect sacrifice. And this is beautiful. His procession into town was ceremonious but also the announcement that he was the Messiah being foretold and that he was the King of kings and Lord of lords in the lineage of King David. Because his words and his life bring us true life, real love and a true life, we can have true purpose beyond our wildest imagination. We can have creative hope for every day. He can bring you to the point of overflow with the love that he offers you. He is the only God in any story that you will read. It doesn't matter what story you read. He is the only God that cared enough for you and for me to be willing to die for us, to save us, to love us. And that is real love. John 15 verse 13 says, There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. John 10.11 says, I, being Jesus, am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. I think about John chapter 17, and I'm not going to go there. But if you read this, we hear and see in Jesus' tone that he's praying for you and me, for future believers, in verses 20 through 26 in chapter 17 of John. The author of life is praying for not just the disciples, not the people that were just standing beside him, but for future people that would believe in him, which is you and me. And this prayer is powerful. Perhaps reading that this week as you prepare for Easter will be of great encouragement to you. As we conclude today, I've been wrestling with a couple of ideas, but I think you will take advantage of whichever one makes the most sense for you. As I read these words, I recognize that my spirit, I pray that my spirit is willing, but I know that my body is weak. And I'm asking myself, how many times Have I heard that I need to do physical training and I need to exercise? But do I take that seriously? And on the flip side, am I learning to to grow my spiritual muscles in preparation for Easter, in preparation for life every day moving on from here? And some of the ways that I think we could really commit to doing this would be praying for ways to share your story with others, 
and looking for ways to even send a picture invite. I'm going to try and send out a church text this week if you get those. If not, we're going to have a remind thing go out um, that'll, that'll send you a text to your phone. That'll be a church invite. So you can forward that text to someone else and remind them that we would love to have them join us at church. Or perhaps you just want to personalize it and write somebody a text and invite them to join with you. Create a watch party of your own where you know that other friends and family are watching with you. What would it look like for a new family to find Jesus for the first time, even in the midst of whatever's going on in the world? What if they found Jesus for the first time? What if, what if a church family began to um, join us in worship online? You could be a part of that. Second idea would be to begin praying for people and get creative with this, whatever works for you. I know for us, the salt and pepper shakers are a constant item that everybody's um, always using and the milk. And so those are the three that I'm going to talk about. If you want to get like a sticky note and just cut out and write a name and leave that sticky part and put somebody's name on the salt and pepper shakers so that every time you grab those, you commit to praying for that person. And maybe they have a health situation. Maybe they need to know Jesus. Maybe you struggle with praying for that person. Put that on the item that you use the most. And remember to pause and pray for this person every time. I think this could be powerful. When you pray for others, you begin to really hope and pray that they will know Jesus and that they will have his presence. And my last idea is to grab two thank you cards today, or maybe it's two emails if you don't want to send a card. But writing someone a specific email or uh, writing a handwritten note that says, I am praying for you. Thank you for your kindness and your generosity. Thank you for doing this nice act for me. Thank you for being a good friend. Writing them a sweet little reminder and writing that right now, not wasting another minute. That's what I have for us today as we've understood what the real love of Christ looks like. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we ask that we would serve you well. We would live out the good news each and every day. That we would believe that your love, this real love I've described here today, that was put on display through your life and your death and your resurrection, that it is available, this real love. We have the availability to have a relationship with you, Jesus. Thank you for the privilege and the honor that we can hear these things. But help us to respond, to trust you more deeply, to understand your purpose and why you came, and that you love us and want a relationship with us. Thank you, God, that you hear our requests, and we offer all of this service up to you. You are worthy of our praise. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us for church online today. We are so grateful for the opportunity to worship God in this way. Until next time, we'll see you right here. And we can't wait to see you in person. God bless.